Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the books and ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Michael Roth, president of Wesleyan University and author of the new book, The Student, A Short History. Uh, Michael, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And congratulations uh, on the new book. So who and what is The Student? Well, The Student is um, many things, as it turns out. You know, I've been in college since 1975, basically, with a short stint at the Getty uh, Research Institute in, in the middle somewhere. And even there, uh, I was, I, I really considered myself a, a student. So I, I thought it would be interesting to try to articulate both what I love about being a student and what I think my students love about learning. And to do a kind of genealogy of uh, this contemporary notion of being a student, of being open to experimentation, about having uh, uh, the world as something about which you inquire, and go back and say, when, how did that arise? And was it always that way? Now, I, I, had to, I had to define this pretty quickly so that I could write it in a few years because I am the president of a university and most of my writing is done in the summer. And I thought, well, when I think of a student, like many people, I guess, I, I think of a teacher. And so I, I, I decided to write about three iconic teachers in the ancient world. Because as I thought about them, I thought the styles of learning that they encouraged or the styles of being a student that they inspire would be instructors as we made our way from the ancient world to contemporary students. So the first part of the book offers a chapter on three students of Confucius, three of uh, Socrates, and three uh, apostles of Jesus. Because I wanted to write about this idea of following in the past, in the case of Confucius, the idea of being a critic or of critique or of uh, critical thinking, uh, it's so important these days, but also so key for the Socrates' interlocutors. And then the idea of, the, of imitating the life of Jesus and, and how apostles understood that. They too uh, often spoke of following, but following in a different sense than the figures that I focus on in relation to Confucius. So that's the first part of the book, sets up following critical conversation and then imitation as a kind of the foundation in the West. I'm very interested in uh, the pre-modern Europe and uh, in the first half of the book and how uh, before there were real schools, people were thought of as being student or at least student-like. And so I, I use social historians and people have written about the idea of childhood and whether there was a, a notion of childhood in the pre-modern period and make my way towards the idea of learning through being an apprentice. You know, you learn a trade, you learn how to make cabinets or, or to make candles or what have you. So I wrote about apprentices. I was very interested to find out about women apprentices, which I knew very little about. And a, a colleague at Wesleyan pointed me in that direction because, of course, being a student for boys is different than for girls. And then I looked at two failed apprentices, two fascinating figures, Ben Franklin and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, both of whom 
uh, wrote about, uh, at some length about the being an apprentice and hating it. <laughs> so here, I'm the guy who loves being a student. They were apprentices and had to get out of it. And so that I thought was an interesting hinge in a way between the uh, early uh, periods that I'm interested in and then the modern notion of being a student. Because Rousseau and Franklin are on the cusp of the modern West, which for me is identified with the enlightenment notion of being a student, which is to, to release yourself or free yourself from what Kant called self-imposed immaturity. I was, I was just going to say, it's, it's fascinating because, I mean, this is definitely one of the themes which runs throughout the book, even in that pre-modern uh, period, that this link between learning and independence, that you have to learn something in order to be free from it, uh, you say. And that's something that you trace all the way through the book, that critical thinking, independence of thought, uh, is crucial to being a good student, you say. Yeah, I th especially in the modern period. I think independence meant something a little different uh, for most people in the pre-modern West. That is, it really meant financial independence. My daughter just got a job, and so I'm delighted that she's, uh, you know, pay paying her own rent, partly because it's, you know, she's paying her own rent, and partly because it's just a good thing to feel you are taking care of yourself. And I think in the pre-modern West, that was a big piece of it, independence and then also integration so that you would become part of the this village or the town or the city. You, you became capable of having your own household or joining another household other than your parents. And so that sense of independence, very important, not wanted more than that, Kant wanted you to no longer take refuge in immaturity that you could leave behind. You know, like my grandson is four, you know, he, he can't drive the car, <laughs> right? Um, but my son, who's in his 30s, um, he actually could stop acting like a, a kid, right? He, he has the capacity to grow up. And what Kant meant was that we should uh, peel away the layers of dependence on our childish dimensions and think for ourselves. And as you say, I mean, that notion of thinking for yourself uh, becomes uh, associated with the idea of freedom, about being a free citizen, of choosing who's going to rule you. And, and um, that becomes ever more important from the turn of the 1700s to the 1800s. And then, uh, uh, especially in this latter part of the 1800s. It's interesting that the flip side of that, though, is Rousseau, who you talk about a lot. You mentioned uh, earlier in the, uh, the conversation there that uh, I was very struck by this section in the book where you talk about Rousseau emphasizing that as, as a student and as a child, we need to be kept separate from social life, that, uh, that in order to protect ourselves. And that, that uh, I suppose that leaps off the page immediately because it's almost impossible for children, for students today, to be separate from that social life because of uh, social media and so on. So uh, these these kind of continuities and discontinuities are things that you're always you're keen to to tease out in the book in the the different experiences of being a student at different points in history. Yes, absolutely, and I'm so glad you point that out, Rousseau, because. Uh... Rousseau was so worried about being contaminated by other people. 
in the, in the following way. He was worried that we would try to please other people, thereby changing ourselves, um, you know, making ourselves into creatures that we wouldn't have been otherwise in order to please someone else. And of course, that person is making themselves into someone else too. So we're, we're always chasing a fantasy of another and thereby losing who we really are ourselves. So Rousseau was worried that the threat of imitation, so important in some kinds of teaching and learning, but that the threat of imitation would undermine any semblance of freedom. Because if I'm just imitating a free person, am I really free or am, am, I, just, am I just playing somebody else's role? And, and so, yes, I think that I've taught Rousseau since, since I started teaching uh, almost every year now. <laughs> and so I, I find that his concerns and, and radical worrying, if I can put it that way, are, are so fruitful to think about. You may have noticed in the book also, I have a, a section about the, the problem of slaves. That is that in the Enlightenment, uh, introducing all these ideas of freedom and, and inequality, uh, also was filled with uh, philosophers who justified slavery, either because of their own racism or because of their economic uh, interests. And so the slaves were a, such a problem, if I could put it that way, for, for these philosophers, because the philosophers had to argue they couldn't be students. Good thing. Embedded in the idea of a student is graduation. You should most people, <laughs> you know, go on and 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 think for yourself. And these guys had to argue that black people who were slaves, and sometimes they said black people in general, could never think for themselves. And so uh, they then twisted in themselves in knots to try to justify these these views. Uh, for example, arguing that it's a crime to teach slaves to read because they uh, evidently because they didn't think for themselves. But the whole idea was they couldn't think for themselves. So why do you need a law forbidding them? So, and, and Frederick Douglass and others pointed this out. And so the idea of race up and freedom in the West, uh, it forms a thread in the book. I, as you know, I also write about W.E.B. Du Bois, kind of a famously great student who always had to face obstacles because uh, as, a, as a black person in the United States. And curiously, when he went to Germany, as an exchange student, he felt very free, as in fact, and and was open to a different kind of learning. Yeah, I mean, uh, in that section on Du Bois, uh, I think the word that you use is a certain kind of steeliness uh, that he has to to have in order to pursue this education against all of the social pressures telling him to do something completely different with his life. Yes, exactly, and he writes so movingly about his. You know, he's kind of stepping out of his steeliness because people are treating him as a human being uh, in Germany when he's on a cruise on the, on the river. And then very sadly, when he's coming back to America, thinking, here I go back into this, this you know, racist uh, country that will try not just my patience, but my intellect and put my life in danger at times. And he was prepared for that better than most. But it's it's a sad commentary uh, on the history of this country that uh, even someone with that kind of talent and capacity was forced again and again uh, to deal with the legacies of slavery and, and ongoing racism. Which is, which is why he puts such an emphasis, you say, on education, because it's about freedom through empowerment. That's what education provides. Exactly. And, and I, I discuss here is 
I did once before in a book called Beyond the University on liberal education um, uh, that Du Bois said, you know, it's not just learning a skill like uh, Booker T. Washington and others are saying. It's not, it's not only that. It can include learning a skill, learning a trade, being an apprentice, essentially. Uh, it has to be empowering in a more general way as a human being. I was also I was very struck that a lot of what we've been talking about is critical thinking. Um, but in the book, you make the point uh, that uh, students also have to develop critical feeling. Um, what do you what do you mean by that? And why is that so central? Thanks for that question. You know, I, I wrote uh, in Beyond the University and then some essays in the press uh, articles against critical thinking, because it's one of the few things in education that everyone seems to like. Critical thinking. Oh, it's hard to find anybody critical, critical thinking. So I wrote a piece, uh, maybe in the New York Times or Chronicle of Higher Education, uh, Beyond Critical Thinking. And, and partly this was my own sense that really good students think they're even better when they can knock down anybody, anybody's argument. They can tear anything apart. You know, a little bit like the critiques of Socrates, really, that he can make anyone look stupid. Well, there's some virtue in that, but I think it's a very um, small virtue, actually. And I find that many of my students, when I'm teaching Rousseau or uh, Jane Austen or, or whomever, Flaubert next week in my class, that they, they will quickly say, ah, I see what's wrong with this is X, you know. And, and I always tell them, no one cares what you think about uh, Kant or Flaubert or Jane Austen. Nobody cares what I think. Our job is to figure out what they thought. And why so many people think their work is of vital importance. You can go home and say, I don't like it so much. That's fine. But the game in my class is for you to tell me why they matter. So what I mean by critical feeling is to be able to put yourself in a position that you understand why someone else's ideas or work of art uh, or political positions really matter. You might call it empathy in, in some ways, but it, it, it demands a kind of intelligence as well as feeling um, that that's not, not everyone means by the word empathy. And so to put yourself in the position of a character in a novel, or, or I say to my students, and I remember this so vividly myself, when I was a kid, I, hadn't, I don't think I ever met anyone who ever been to an opera, let alone listen to an opera myself. And um, I had a great teacher named Carl Shorsky, who was my dissertation advisor eventually. But he used to teach this course on intellectual history at Cal Berkeley and then at Princeton. And he would do a session on Tristan and Isolde. And, I, and he was like an extra class. The last place I'd ever go would be a, a Wagner opera, I thought. But I was a nerd, so it was extra. I would go to extra class. And he made this so important to us as we listened. He opened it up to us so that you could see why other people were moved. And that's what critical feeling is. So you can understand why other people are moved by a work of art, offended by an argument, or taken over by a, uh, a point of view. And that's not just a, a standpoint, like a, a, an intellectual matter. It's, it's an affective matter as well. And so I want our students to be able to um, feel more broadly and not just to be able to be critical of, of almost everything. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, and it's a point that you make right at the beginning of the book, actually, that, I mean, it is true that, as you said there, argument can very often be quite attritional, um, critical in a very combative, destructive kind of a way. 
Uh, but I was very struck by the phrase that you use right at the start, uh, where you talk about uh, thinking for ourselves in amiable company. That that sense of community, of companionship in ideas, uh, it's clearly something that matters a great deal to you. But it but it is also something that uh, is at odds with the contemporary culture. Yes, I think that's exactly right, and I'm so happy that you you pulled that phrase out. Um, it, it comes from really my own experience in the classroom. And people ask me all the time, aren't students, uh, you know, canceling each other and afraid to speak? And of course, there's some of that. But one of the things that you do as a teacher in a classroom where you're dealing with issues that are controversial and relevant to them uh, is to try to give people a sense that they can trust each other enough to disagree intensely or at least to hear uh, points of view that they would otherwise find anathema. But that because you're in the classroom, you trust each other enough you're amiable, you can um, venture ideas that you may not be sure of yourself, and you can listen to points of view that um, you were told were not appropriate. And I see this uh, all the time. I'll give you an example. I, I, I teach a course um, on virtue and vice uh, in history, literature, and philosophy, and, and we have a, a section actually about why victims become heroes in the last 50 years in North America, especially. Um, and uh, so they had, we were reading a rape memoir at the time. During the height of the sexual assault controversies on campuses, I thought we should really go as far as we could and think about it. And we read a, um, a memoir of a, a woman who was raped in college. And I asked the students if they had a pill they could take to erase the memory of a violent assault rape, would they take it? And would they offer it to a friend who was suffering months or even years after such an attack. And I break them into groups to talk about this. And a young man raises his hand and says, I don't think I should do this because I have never had this experience. It would be inappropriate for me to put myself in the shoes. That, and I just, I said, listen, no one's had this experience. There's the pill doesn't exist. It's a thought experiment. You can do this and talk about it with your, your neighbors in class. He said, okay. And Every year, they have pretty intense discussions in their little groups, and then we come back as a big group, and we're able to talk about this very tender subject. Very, I don't think there's a right answer to that question. Uh, and I think partly we're able to do that because we've, we've created at least a fiction of amiability, and that gets you part of the way there. I mean, once you start pretending you're friendly, you become friendlier, as we know. And so that's really what I mean is to create a context where people can learn with each other because they have some trust in each other. It's what I mean by a safe enough space. It's pre my previous book. You know, it's not so safe that you don't disagree or you, you can't talk about something as awful as rape. It's safe enough so that you can, that you can disagree, that you can risk being offensive uh, or being offended because you have some confidence, some amiability that um, gives you the license or, or a fellow feeling so you could do that. Yeah. Do you, do you sometimes think that we actually underestimate uh, students and their, and their resilience? I mean, for example, uh, all of the chatter using uh, offensive phrases like snowflakes uh, and so on. But look at how this uh, most recent generation of students uh, coped with, uh, with the pandemic. An incredible thing that certainly none of us uh, had had to go through in our own formative years like that. 
Uh, and they emerged with incredible courage and resilience and, and demonstrated that exactly what you're talking about there, that, that ability to do so in a way that is kind of amiable and companionable and, and making brave choices about di th difficult things happening in the world. I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I do think they're very capable of making brave choices. It's a great phrase. Um, and when uh, and encouraged to do so, we're, um, they, they make more of them. And part of our job as, as teachers and, and mentors is to, is to provide that encouragement. If you do the opposite, though, you can actually undermine their resilience pretty quickly by treating them as if they are more fragile than they are, in, in fact. Uh, and so that's what teaching is, right? You, you figure out who needs very, very sharp criticism because otherwise they'll never realize they're not doing a good job. And who needs a different kind of criticism because you don't want to crush their spirit, but you, you just, you don't want to reward them for doing bad work. And, and all teachers have to figure that out in a classroom, whether you're teaching 10 year olds or, uh, or, or 25 year olds, uh, you know, you, what kind of criticism and fellow feeling will help this person move from where they are to being more free, more open, more experimental. You know, I quote John Baltasari, the, great um, artist and art teacher in LA who said, you know, the great teaching art, the most important thing is to know when to get out of the way. And I, I think there's a lot to that. He was very self-effacing. So he said that, you know, he made it sound like that was all there was, but, but it is an important thing because if you're thinking for yourself at some point, that means liberating yourself from your teacher. Um, and I think that good teachers always know that. I mean, it's a little bit like, you know, uh, relations between parents and children. Uh, that there, there's there's a, a point at which, as a parent, you really have to let go, and as a as a kid, you you either have to give up the silly rebellion or give up your your childish dependence. And presumably, in the in the best possible sense, not caring what your students think. In other words, that you should be able to have a Marxist in your class and a neoconservative in your class, and and every and every and everything in between. Um, and and your job is to help them develop their own thinking, their own critical thinking, uh, so that they can go off in their own individual directions. In other words, it's not about dogma and doctrine or a catechism. That's exactly right. I mean, I one of my favorite things to teach is uh, Aquinas, and uh, and when I'm I'm teaching it, I I really try very hard to uh, convey what's at stake in these questions of faith. Uh, and the students are quite surprised. I'm a, they also know I'm an atheist Jew, but when I'm teaching uh, th these uh, texts from Christianity, I, I want to make them as compelling as possible. As I did this week, I taught Marx, you know, and, and I have some students in the class who started you know, talking about communist China and Soviet Union. And I have to say, you know, this is, we're talking about 1847. It was talking about Marx. Why does Marx say what Marx says? And I think this week they'll probably think, oh, he must be a Marxist, but we're going to do Nietzsche in two weeks. And so, you know, and, and I'll, but I'll want them to learn to think. Yeah, you know, I, I want them to think with, with uh, teachers whose views they don't really know and, and, and try to understand those views, let's say, in our case of what we're reading, and to be less dismissive and more open. And I think if, if that can happen through studying history and philosophy, I have found in my whole life, it opened my, my world to more possibilities than would have been there without those teachers. 
And we've been talking very much about your philosophy of education and the student and the relationship with the teacher and so on. Uh, but as we said at the beginning, you're also the president uh, of a university. What about the students who are coming into university? Questions around access. Uh, there have been important decisions uh, made by the Supreme Court, for example. There are questions uh, about legacy students, access and uh, and so on. And uh, a lot of people questioning uh, whether the old ideas around meritocracy uh, are still valid, allowing the poorest students to travel the distance to elite uh, institutions on their uh, on the on the basis of their talent. Uh, what what do you make of those of those kind of debates which are going on from your position as a president? Yes, well, um, this summer, in the wake of the Supreme Court decision, uh, I decided that Wesleyan, which had only a small legacy admissions program to begin with, that we would do away with that program. And uh, I announced that over the summer. And it, it, it clearly had more symbolic importance than I realized, not for Wesleyan people, but for the wider public. Cause, uh, and, and I think that we have to find ways to recruit uh, a, a, a diverse campus without the tools of affirmative action that were available to us before. I, you know, I disagree with the uh, Supreme Court's decision, but we'll abide by that decision. It's the law of the land. And so finding ways to make uh, a, a highly selective school like Wesleyan more accessible to more people has been high on my agenda. And I feel like I haven't accomplished nearly as much as I had hoped to in that regard. We introduced a three-year program of some years ago to make it easier for people to save 20, 25% in the total bill. You know, if you if you don't have economic resources, it's, it's free to go to Wesleyan. Um, but if your father's a nurse and your mother's a policeman, um, you don't have a ton of money, you'll get some financial aid, but it still may be, feel too expensive to go to Wesleyan or to schools like ours. And so we're trying hard to... Um, subsidize the education for people who can't afford it, that takes a lot of money. I, I, I would prefer to find a way to make the education less expensive to begin with, rather than just increasing subsidy through philanthropy. In order to do that, and some schools do, the very, very richest schools can do that. And, and you know, we've, I've been teaching online for more than a decade. I have you know, a few hundred thousand students who've taken my modern and postmodern course uh, online, and I had hoped that courses like that, programs like that, would eventually bring down the cost of education. But that has not proven to be the case. So I'm working now on a program with the National Educational Equity Foundation. That my idea is to have a freshman year for free. That we would have a year of college-bearing courses that you could take in high school. You could transfer them to a school, and you would at least get a year off. What I found is talking to parents is that they don't want their kids to only have three years. They want them to have the full experience. And I always say that four years is just a convention. It's not like it, it could have been five years. It could have been three, you know, but people really hold on to that uh, in many cases. So we need to do more to make uh, highly selective schools accessible. More importantly, because they're such much bigger universities, we need to do more to make large public universities and community colleges more accessible to more people so that they not only start those schools, which they often do, but where they can finish their diploma. I'm not a fan of saying ah, fewer people should go to college because um, I don't think anyone's ever accused Americans of being overeducated. Um, and and I, I think that it's, it's great if we get more Americans to go to college, 
but we need to subsidize that with public funds because it's a public good to have a more educated citizenry. I don't know if it, it has to be four years. I don't think it does myself, but I do think promoting access to public education is really an important topic for the next decade. So the book is The Student, A Short History. It's written by my guest, Michael Roth, and published by Yale University Press. Uh, but for now, Michael, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you very much. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman, and this is me, Richard Aldous, saying thanks for listening. 